Excellent. Good morning. Thank you, Tim. And along with Tim, I want to welcome you here. Uh, if you're a guest, thanks very much for coming this morning. This next portion of our gathering time, we spend uh, learning from uh, the Bible. Uh, so we're going to read some portions of it and then uh, speak uh, in light of it. Um, as Tim said, we're in 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 16. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry, I'm going to read it through, but then we'll have all the uh, verses on the screen for you. But I'd like to begin uh, with a word of prayer. So uh, please join me as I pray. Uh, Lord, I am thankful for all that you're doing in and through us as a church. Uh, thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to go and serve uh, those who are homeless in our community. I pray, Lord, that that would uh, be effective. I pray, Lord, they would indeed feel helped. And uh, Lord, that uh, there would be a greater sense of hope, uh, immediate hope as we, as we serve them with food and give them a place to stay. But uh, I do pray, Lord, that they would find a greater hope in you and uh, that we might have the pleasure of being a part of that. I pray also for our time here. I pray, please, that you would uh, help us to, to know you more. Lord, I pray that through this part of the Bible, we would come to understand uh, what it means to be a Christian uh, more clearly and, and how it is that Christians should live. So, so please help us, please help me, uh, in spite of my own sin, to speak words that are helpful. And I pray you would really bless our time, uh, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin uh, by telling you about a young woman from China. Uh, her name is Yao Miao. That's, that's her name. Uh, she is an ultra runner. So that, that's her there. Uh, if you're not sure what ultra runners are, ultra races, they are races that are held a very, at very high altitudes and for very long distances. Uh, so we have some pictures of her running there. Typically, they're running through mountain passages, usually eight, ten thousand 10,000 feet high. And usually the races are between 60 and 100 miles. So a marathon, in case you're not familiar, is 26 miles. So four, time, four marathons is what they sometimes run in these races. Uh, her biggest win so far was in September of 2018. She won the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc in France. That's 62 miles through the French Alps. Uh, her running time was 11 hours, 57 minutes, and 46 seconds straight, running the whole time. Uh, she was 30 minutes ahead of the second place uh, finisher. So she's uh, very fast, very fast. But more than that, uh, Yao is very tough. Uh, a runner and journalist who's been covering her says this of her. It says, she has gotten to where she is because she is mentally so tough. Uh, she knows how to fight with everything she has. Her grit is incredible. Uh, if you've been involved at any level of serious sport, you know the importance of grit. We can enjoy sports. A lot of us, you know, we play sports. We have some leisurely pastimes. Uh, but if we're serious about sports, serious about uh, achieving something in terms of any area of sport, we know that grit is essential. Uh, any serious competitor knows that you are going to be involved with a certain level of, of self-discipline and sacrifice and suffering, especially if you're going to do an ultra race, to, to find some level of achievement. It's necessary to really push through and fight. That's true today. And it was true in the first century. In the first century, they had athletic competitions. Uh, our title for our sermon today is Fight the Good Fight. And it comes from one of our verses in which uh, Paul, the writer, says, Fight the good fight of faith. Uh, if you were with us in the fall, you might remember that in chapter one of this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, he told Timothy, Wage the good warfare. And this command kind of sounds similar, but fight the, the good fight. Uh, it actually is very often applied to athletic competitions. 
That's kind of what people would have heard. In fact, uh, Paul writes in his next letter to Timothy, uh, these words in chapter four, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's this real sense that we find throughout the Bible that a life of faith, a life following Jesus is at times a fight. It is something that we endure, that we must persevere. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that while that is true, it's also true that God has given us everything we need to succeed, everything we need to endure and to persevere to the end. So without further ado, I'm going to read the first major portion of our text, uh, verses 11 to 15, and then we're going to uh, pick it apart a bit. So here is, here is uh, Paul writing to a young man named Timothy, young pastor, and giving him instructions. He says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. I'm going to pause there. So we have four points, four main commands that we see here. But just before we get to them, I want to address a question that you might have, uh, especially if you have some familiarity with sort of biblical teaching. Uh, this very idea that we are to fight for our faith, you might question that. You might say, I mean, do we really have to fight for our faith? Isn't our faith a gift from God? Isn't, isn't the faith, the belief in who Jesus is, the Christian you know, whole mindset and, and heart disposition, isn't that something that God has done for us? Hasn't Jesus gone to the cross to pay for our sins? Hasn't that been accomplished for us? Aren't we saved by grace alone? Why is there this talk about faith? Well, the, the fighting for the faith. The answers to all those questions is that yes, in fact, Jesus has done all those things. In fact, when you look at the way that Jesus, his appeal that he makes to come and believe in him, look at the language. This is in the book of Matthew. Uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, what he's saying is that to follow him, to believe in his name, to become a Christian, there is a real sense of peace in your soul, a real sense of rest from the work of trying to, to accomplish everything in your life, trying to be perfect. This is something that he does for us. He went to the cross to pay for our sin. He did the work of salvation. And then the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our heart to see the truth and applies it to our lives. Faith is a gift from God. It's what it means to be spiritually alive. The real question, though, is for those who, who say, look, I am a Christian. I am spiritually alive by the grace of God, by the power of God. The question then is, how do we live? What do we do with our life now that we've been, we've been given this, this spiritual reality, this, this hope? And the answer that we find over and over again is that, is that we run, we fight, we push hard. We, we run towards Jesus. We turn from sin. We run out into the world with the hope of the gospel. We are on a mission from God to share with others the hope that we have, and we are called to turn away from everything that will hinder us. It is, it is a real fight. A fight to turn from sin, 
a fight to fully experience all that God has given us, and a fight to be faithful. And these are the instructions that Paul is giving now to Timothy, saying, look, if you're going to run this race of faith, here are the things you need to do. Here's how you find success in it. So four things, as I mentioned. The first one, I'm going to put into simple kind of, simple wording, simple commands. The first one is this. If we are to fight the fight of faith, we need to run in the right direction. We need to run in the right direction. Look at uh, verse 11 and 12. Paul said, but as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. So you notice there, there's this complementary commands. Flee certain things, run away from certain things, and run towards certain other things. Now, the first command, fleeing these things, um, he doesn't articulate it there. It was in the verses just prior. And just to make it clear for us, we're going to kind of diagram this, just so we can see what Paul is saying. So the things that Paul is telling Timothy to flee, if we look back in the preceding verses, are things like the love of money, uh, being puffed up with conceit, craving controversy, envy, slander, having a depraved mind. Basically, all kinds of evil is what, is what Paul is saying. All kinds of sin. All of these things that are contrary to what God says is best. Paul says to Timothy, remember, if you're going to run the race of faith, you have to flee from those things, turn away from those things. The, the beginning part of our, of our verse says, but as for you, Timothy, is like Timothy, that's not you anymore. You're now a man of God. So you should pursue this other list. Uh, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are the classic virtues of the Christian faith. So in a sense, really what Paul is saying is, is flee sin of all kinds, but pursue godliness, pursue godly living. Now, one thing that becomes clear when you look at it, just kind of on, on paper there in a sense, is that you can't go in both directions at the same time. Either you are moving towards the things evil, right? Either you're flipped and you're going in the other direction or you are pursuing the things of God, right? It's, it's, not, it's not both and, it's, it's either or. This is important for us to take note of because in our day, in our day, the hallmark of morality in our day is the sense that we can do both. We have this sense that, that we can say about ourselves, look, I'm living a good life. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. And yet, present in our lives are things that we ourselves would say are wrong, are immoral. If, if we have a biblical mindset, we might call them sin. We have the sense that there's this gray area of morality, that we can be good people on our way to a good life, even though there's evil that is present within us. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. In fact, just logically, we would see the problems with that kind of a mindset. But look at how the Bible talks about uh, just human beings. This is Romans 6, 16. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? What it's saying is that the way you live your life demonstrates who is your master. If you're pursuing things of evil, things that you know are wrong, things that are immoral, then you are, you are in a sense, allowing those things to have authority over you. And down that path is, is death. But on the flip side, if you're pursuing the things of God, then you are actually allowing God to be master over your life. Look for a moment again. So we see the two lists, right? The command that Paul is giving, if you really think about it, seems fairly obvious. 
especially if you're familiar with the, the teaching of the Bible. Of course, of course he's going to tell us we should run away from all the bad things, right, and run to the good things. That's, that's what Christians do. That might be what you think, is that to be a Christian, to be part of the church, it means that you have to not do all of these bad things and do all of these good things, and then you are a good Christian. In fact, that's not, that's not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Right? The essence of what it means to be a Christian is, is that Jesus has done all of these things for us, and that we're free now from sin. But again, the question is, if that's true of you, if you believe, then what, how are you living? What are you pursuing with your life? See, it strikes me that even though we might, we might believe these lists are true, and we might understand clearly the command, very often we're not going in the right direction. Very often we're waffling between these two directions. So why is that? Why is it that it can be so clear in our mind? We can write it down on paper and see it so clearly. Like, this is, this is going to lead to my death, right? Sin is, the things of God are leading to life. Going away from God is leading to the, why do we have trouble with it? I think, I think one of the main problems we have is to really believe that sin is dangerous. It's to really think that it is going to lead us to destruction, lead us to eternal destruction, but even hardship in this life. See, when danger is clear, usually as human beings, we do something about it. Uh, there's a phrase that came to my mind um, that you might know. I remember it when I was like as a kid playing with spaceships or, or jet planes. And if there was a missile, right? Someone would fire a missile. You would say, take evasive action. Remember that? You know that phrase, right? I think it's actually in the military. They would say that. Take evasive action. Meaning you're about to be exploded by a missile, a Lego missile. So take evasive action. You go like this. You do everything you can to get out of the way. Because you know, if you don't move, you're going to be destroyed. You, you take evasive, a committed, very determined action to flee that which is going to kill you and find safety somewhere else. I don't think that we take evasive action very often when it comes to our sin. I would characterize, at least in my life very often, my action as half-hearted, slow, non-committal, there's very often a sense, even as Christians, as we're trying to live the, the life of pursuing God, where there'll be things in our life and we will mentally say, say something like, yeah, I, I know I, man, I should probably deal with that at some point. I know that's probably not the best for me, not the best, th best way for me to talk, best thing for me to watch, best thing for me to be involved in, but I'll get to it someday. Right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right for the most part. We, we explain away we find ways to, to rationalize. See, the truth is, we are only going to run in the right direction if we are clear about two things. We need to be clear about the danger of sin, that it does actually lead to our eternal death and our destruction. And there have been many, many people before us who have professed faith in Jesus, who said, I'm a Christian, I'm showing up on Sunday, I'm here. And yet, they have never lived a repentant lifestyle. They have not actually turned away from their sin. They've tried to have both. And in the end, they've shipwrecked their faith. They've revealed the fact that that profession of faith was never actually genuine. We also need to be convinced of the blessing of godliness. If you are a Christian here, can you think back in those times when you've actually conformed your life to the teachings of the Bible? Hasn't it been better? Haven't you found a greater sense of peace and blessing? See, we often get these two things confused because of what we see around us. 
because probably our, our minds and our hearts are not steeped in, in the word of God. So the question right out of the gate that this text is prompting us to ask ourselves is, is which way are we going? Which way are we actually going? Not where do we want to go, where do we think we're going, we say we're going, but actually in our lives, is there sin that is present that we are not interested in repenting of, not interested in turning from? Again, this is not to earn the righteousness of God. This is, this is because Jesus has gone to the cross and paid for all of these sins. Now, how, how do we see them now? Are we, are we entertaining them still? Are we, are we allowing them to have weight in our lives and in our hearts? And you see now why, why Paul talks about the fight of faith. This is hard. This isn't easy. Our, our whole minds and hearts are hardwired to love the things of the world. It takes discipline, it takes humility. It takes going to other people in our lives and confessing sin, asking for help. Say, please pray for me. Look, I never told you that. I need to tell you this. I need to come clean. Trusting that in that there will be greater peace. There will. But it takes work. So that's the first thing. We need to run in the right direction. The second thing is this. We need to hold on tight. Now look at verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So this command also is kind of interesting because Timothy's a Christian and Christians by definition have eternal life. That's the whole idea. It's what you believe in. But he's telling him, take hold of that thing you already have, which is a bit, a bit confusing. But let's look at the language more closely. In the Greek, uh, to take hold means to grasp violently. Uh, there's another time it's used, which is helpful. Um, in Matthew 14, uh, Peter, if you remember the story, when he's walking on the water and then Jesus is on the water and, he, and then he begins to sink, uh, it says, but when he, uh, this is verse 30, uh, when Peter saw the wind and was afraid, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So that's the same word. So when he says, you know, to hold on to the eternal life, think of it like someone is drowning. That's the level of intensity. Think of how hard you would grab someone's hand if they were slipping under the water. You would make sure you grabbed and you grabbed hard. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. You should, you should grasp the gift you've been given of eternal life with that kind of intensity. Now, of course, he's not talking about a physical grasping. He's talking about an emotional, intellectual, spiritual grasping. Like in your mind and your heart, you have a firm hold of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, that you have the hope of life eternal, the hope of heaven to look forward to. He's saying, if you do that, then it will in fact change your life today. It's not just for the future. It is, but it's also for today. And you might wonder, how does that, like, how does that work? It seems a bit intangible, right? To grasp hold of this thing, this belief, and then have it, how does it work? So here's, uh, an example of, I think, this is like a lesser example of how this kind of thing works. Um, the BC Lotto Corporation uh, has an ad campaign out adver advertising their daily grand lottery. So this is a lottery where if you win it, you get $1,000 a day. And the way that the commercials work is that they talk about all these things that someone is trying to do. Uh, like they want to go play hockey, but they stink at hockey. Or they want to try skating and they're horrible. Or they want to do windsurfing. There's all these things. This person is failing at miserably, but they say, but you still get $1,000 a day. And so you should feel happy about your life, even though you, you know, stink at hockey and all these things. The hope, right, your whole day, every day is good because you get $1,000 a day at the end of the day. 
Now, a couple of things. Um, please don't play the lotto. Please don't hear me saying that you should go buy lottery tickets. Sometimes they give examples and the people are like, I guess Matt said we should play the lotto. I've never done it before, but okay. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. The lottery is not a good financial plan for your life. Even if you get $1,000 a day, it's temporary. It's not going to bring you lasting satisfaction. Don't play the lotto. However, the principle there of a future hope impacting your daily life, that is valid if the hope is genuine. See what that's saying, right? Your, your, your day changes, your emotional disposition changes because you have this, this hope, this thing you're looking forward to. See, the gospel, there is no greater hope than the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. You have eternal life. So grab hold of that hope because it will inform and transform your daily life. See, if we fully understood what we have in Jesus as, as Christians, it would be very difficult for us to be bitter, grumpy, uh, discouraged people. Like if we, really, if we really knew and believed, had in the forefront of our mind all the blessings that we have in Jesus. And so to grasp hold means that instead of thinking of eternal life, heaven is something far off, way out there that, yeah, I'm glad I have that, but it doesn't really mean anything now. Instead, we are to think of, think of its impact here and now every day, to, to, to take hold of it, to allow its truth, God's love, God's power, God's promises to impact our lives means that we, we in a sense, bask in the, the glories of that future hope and say, look, there, man, God really does love me. He's done everything to give me a hope that goes beyond this life. The drudgery of this life is nothing compared to the glories that God has given us. So I'm not sure if you think about heaven very often, but it really seems like we should be thinking of heaven. We should be mindful of all that God has given us. Without it, without that kind of a future hope, life can easily become hopeless. It can easily become empty. Especially when things that we've been trying to change are not changing. Especially when there's, there's some situation, there's some person, there's something in our lives that we look at that and we think there's no way this is going to change. This is, this is wrong. This isn't working. This is so frustrating. This is so discouraging. And, and, and to add to that is that I don't see how this is ever going to change. See, if you don't have a future hope, then, then we will sit in that discouragement. It, that will impact us. That will affect us. I thought of this uh, this past week. I was listening to a, a, a journalist. Her name is Bim Adewamni. Um, she's a, a black journalist and podcaster in the U.S., and she does a lot of uh, work on race relations and, and issues of injustice. And uh, she was lamenting the fact that even after years of work and, and so much energy being put into uh, race issues in the United States of America, race is still an issue, uh, a big issue, an ever-present issue and problem uh, in the U.S. And, and she was sort of, she was sharing that there's been times in her life when she's she sort of dreamed about going somewhere else in the world to get away from racism. She literally was thinking of, you know, maybe I should go to Africa. Maybe I should, maybe I should go to South America. That the podcast I was listening to, she was interviewing someone who had moved to Russia because Russia, surprising to me anyway, was, is a place where they prided themselves in a, in a lack of racial issues. And there were some black Americans who had gone there, African Americans who had gone to Russia to escape that. And she was interviewing this, this person, this woman who had moved there with her family. See, the conclusion she came to, of course, is that no matter where she goes, there are going to be issues. Issues of race, issues of 
economic opportunity. There's always issues. But the thing I thought to myself as I was listening to her, I don't think she would articulate it this way or she even thought of this, but what I thought to myself was, you know what she's longing for? She's longing for heaven, right? She's longing for a perfect society where there is, there is, there is dignity for all people, where there's perfect love, there's perfect harmony between people, a, a society where people actually are able to live the way that we all, we all know we should live and yet we can never seem to make it happen. And, and it's possible there because of the presence of God because of the elimination of sin, because our hearts are made pure and we can actually see each other as God has made us and, and love each other and care for each other well. See, the, taking hold of eternal life means having an answer to all the longings of our heart for the, for the way things are messed up and wrong and corrupted here and now. We have, a, we have an answer to that. There is a hope that one day it will not, it will not be that way. Taking hold of this eternal life means a hope that's not just out there in the future. It's for here and now. That's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to have. Have this hope. Grab hold of it. Don't let go. But you'll notice he goes further. In the last part of verse 12, he goes further. Um, Here's what it says. He says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he, what he also does is say, Look, Timothy, there was a day. Do you remember the day when you made the good confession of this eternal hope? And most commentators say that was probably Timothy's baptism day. The day when he was baptized because Christian baptism is a public declaration of your hope. Saying, look, I've been changed. I used to hope in all other things. I used to have no hope because of my sin. But now, because I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised to new life, I have the hope of life forever. You might have noticed that we have our baptism tank up today. I was so excited when I realized this text was, was for today. We are going to baptize someone today. His name is Takashi Inu. And Takashi, he, I'm going to just briefly, he came here from Japan on work exchange. He was invited to our Christmas Eve services, uh, then started attending here on Sunday morning. Uh, was part of an alpha group downtown. And a few weeks ago, Takashi came to faith by the grace of God. To, and he said to us, I have to go back to Japan and I know you're doing baptisms in Easter, but I'm, I'm going back before you. Could I get baptized before I go? We said, Absolutely. That's such a joy to be able to, to have a day like is being described here, a day when Takashi can make the good confession. Say, look, here's my hope. Here's the sure hope that I have. Every Christian should have a day like that. If you're a Christian here this morning, you haven't been baptized, you need to know we're doing a baptism class next week. We're doing baptisms Easter. It's an important thing because it, it, it prompts us to really grab hold of that which we believe. Do we really believe it? Do we believe it enough to go publicly and say, look, every other hope I have is nothing compared to the hope of Jesus? What Paul's mentioning here, though, you notice he's, he's saying, look, Timothy, you had that day. The reason he's pointing back to it is because even though that day, a baptism day, is a day when we are intentional and excited about our faith, the days that follow, we, we can begin to hold our faith loosely. Right? Our, our sense of intensity a sense of intentionality about that which we believe, we can, we can tend to take it for granted. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, don't do that. He's saying to us, look, how, are you holding on to your faith tightly? Are you grasping it for all it's worth? Are you allowing the truths of eternal life and that your sins are forgiven and that perfect love and perfect grace are yours in Christ? Are you allowing that to actually inform the way that you live? Because that's how you should live. That's how you fight the fight of faith. 
That's the second thing. Hold on tight. Thirdly, thirdly, we are to follow the leader. Uh, Here's what he says in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So here Paul is giving Timothy a charge. The charge is keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, which is another way. It's like restating what he said at the beginning. Flee, sin, pursue godliness, fight the good fight of faith. But while he is making that charge very clear, he's also giving some very clear encouragement. He's making this charge, look there, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things. So Paul seems to be saying, look, in light of the fact that God has given you physical life and spiritual life, you can keep this command. You can, you can move forward in faith. But he also says, um, he charges him in the presence of Jesus, who himself made the good con- confession before Pilate. And that's a reference uh, to kind of the Easter story where the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify Jesus, but they needed a Roman approval. So they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the, the governor at the time. And there, uh, Pilate interviewed Jesus, kind of interrogated him. And he basically said to Jesus, look, they want you dead. They want you crucified. They say you're a king. Explain yourself. And, and if you know the story, you know that Jesus, he, he could have said a lot of things. He could have downplayed his kingship, right? He hadn't come to take the throne right then and there. He could have downplayed that. He could have pointed out his good record, saying, you know, no one's been able to verify any charges against me. He could have found his way out of the situation. Jesus was very good with words. But instead, what he did is he made the good confession. He he, he said these words to Pilate, uh, John 18, verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He basically said, I am exactly who they say. I am the king of the Jews. And what you'll notice there is that his words made it harder for Pilate to let him go. In fact, those words led directly to his crucifixion, to his death. Because that's where Jesus wanted to go, because that's, we needed him to do that. What we see here, the reason that Paul is mentioning this is this is an example of perfect perseverance, perfect faithfulness. John Calvin says this, whenever our hearts waver, let us remember immediately to look to the death of Christ for strength. What cowardice it would be to desert such a leader who goes before us to show us the way. See, Timothy, his heart in that situation, in that that church in Ephesus, his heart must have wavered a lot. He was a young pastor, had a messy church, an overwhelming call to speak and call out those who are teaching wrongly. He must have struggled with fear and doubt and his desire just to leave it all behind, right? To go somewhere else and do anything else without all the pressure. So that's why Paul invokes this example. He says, remember, remember who you're following. Remember your leader, Jesus who persevered through difficulty, through sacrifice, to honor God and to serve others. He's giving that example because because Paul knows that Timothy struggled. He battled in his life. And he knows that we do as well. We battle all the time. We battle the circumstances of life that just never seem to kind of hold together the way that we want them to. We battle inwardly with, with despair and anxiety, with anger. We 
We battle the temptation to find our hope in other things, to grasp onto the wrong thing. But see, the gospel encourages us with the truth that Jesus knows our battles. He, he lived them. He chose to live them so that he might then be able to live in our place and die in our place so that we would not have the ultimate battle on our plates, that we could be free from the ultimate battle of sin and we could be empowered to find success in the other battles of life. See, one of the most effective tactics of our enemy is to make us believe that, that people, no one understands us, that no one's mindful of us, no one's caring for us, that we are alone. And very often the people in our lives, they, they convince us of that, that there really isn't anyone who cares, who understands. But Jesus, we should see, Jesus is just the opposite. He, he's lived the battles that we're living and he's persevered to the end. And so the encouragement here for Timothy is, is Timothy, remember who you're following. Follow, follow your leaders, persevere through the struggles and trials of life because Jesus has already done it for us. Okay, the fourth thing. The fourth thing, the last thing is that we are to run with the end in mind. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. That word until makes a very big difference, right? It, it signifies the fact that there will be an end to our struggle, that the race, the fight will not go on indefinitely, that this corrupt and broken life will not go on forever. In fact, the world as we know it will not go on forever. We as Christians, as the church, are to persevere until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a callback to um, Jesus's ascension. So Jesus came, he, he lived uh, regular human life perfectly, went to the cross, was put to death, was dead for three days, rose from death, then showed himself to a whole bunch of people and then, and then ascended, kind of rose up into the sky, back up into heaven. And his disciples were left there looking up wondering what's next. And then this happened. Acts 1.11, an angel appeared and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the word from the Lord is, look, Jesus will come back. Jesus is going to return. You may not know it, but there are a lot of differences of opinion about how the end times will go. Okay, there's, there's those that see the, the rapture of the church, see the millennial reign of Christ. There's some that say things are going to get worse and worse. Some say things are going to get better and better. There's a whole bunch of differences of opinion. But there is one thing that all the church, all Christians believe, and that is that Jesus will return. Amen? Jesus is coming back. That's very good news. It changes a lot of things for us because it means that there will be a day when all evil in the world will be judged. There is no one who's going to escape justice. It means that one day Satan will be dealt with forever and for good. It means that one day our sufferings and our trials will end and that one day we will fully experience all the foretastes of joy and peace and hope that we get right now. We'll experience it fully. So whatever trials, whatever disappointments, whatever heartaches exist today and tomorrow and feel like they will go on forever, what Paul is saying is here is it won't be forever. Forever begins when Jesus returns. And that, that should change our level of hopefulness in this life because, because we know what happens when we feel like nothing is going to change. That's when we tend to spiral down into a dark place. 
What we hear over and over again in different ways throughout the Bible is that there is, there is an end to that struggle. We have a present hope in Christ and a future hope that as he returns, he will make all things right. Paul's saying to Timothy, look, you need to persevere. You need to fight, but there's an end. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, you'll notice that there's actually a bit more to our text. You might not have noticed. I didn't read all the way to the end. And that's because Paul, Paul has given Timothy a lot of instructions, which is helpful, right? A lot, of, a lot of focus has been on us. If you're part of the church, it's been on you. Here's how you should act. Here's what you should do. This is, we need this. This is important. But it's not actually the greatest source of encouragement. The greater source of encouragement is what he does in the last couple of verses. He takes the spotlight off of us as human beings and shines it up into, into a vision of God himself. This, this is significant for us. We need this kind of thing more than we realize. Theologian J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes this. He says, we are modern people. And modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. That's a difficult place to be in. Because very often then we feel very overwhelmed. Because we think much of ourselves. You know that's, you know that's true. Right? Think of your thought life. I'm always thinking about myself. I'm fascinated with myself. <laughs> the problem is that I very often am overwhelmed and, and the only thing I'm thinking of is me. And so it feels overwhelming. But look what Paul does at the end here. He reminds Timothy of who he serves and the power that he has access to. I'm going to read it. This is 15 to 16. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let me read it again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the God whom we serve. This is the God who, though he is, he is so far removed from us, who is immortality, who is light itself, he is the one who came down, sent his son to live for us and then die for us. Beholding the glory of God should make very clear to us how much we are loved. That even though God is so great, so brilliant in his purity, we can't even see him, and yet he, he came down to help us. See, sometimes we get the impression that, that if we're living the Christian life, we should not expect to be overwhelmed. That, look, God's not going to push us too hard. He's not going to give us more than we can handle. What we see throughout the Bible is God always gives us more than we can handle because he wants for us to see our need for something greater than ourselves. And he always gives us more than we have. He gives us himself. He gives us the power and the strength and, and the grace to endure all the trials of life because Jesus has already endured the greatest trial for us. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's the source of our encouragement as we fight this fight of faith. So for Timothy and for us, the call is for us to run, for us to fight because the battle has already been won by Jesus and because he's with us. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I'm thankful for this, this glimpse into heaven, as it were, where, where, where Lord God, we, we get to behold the truths that we, we so easily forget, that God, that you are immortality, you are, you are unapproachable in our sin, you are, 
You are a being that is infinite and grand on a scale that we can't even imagine. You made us, and yet, Lord, you also loved us to the point of coming down and being with us. I pray, Lord, for those here that, that don't believe this to be true. I pray, Lord, you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that there would be good questions they would have and that we'd have good answers, that there would be new faith that would come through, through this text, through a, a thinking of who you are. And I pray also, Lord, for those of us who know this to be true, but, but so often live our lives like it isn't. Forget who you are. Forget the, the need to, to turn away from our sin, the very thing that is destroying us, the very thing, Jesus, you died for, that we allow to persist in our lives. Would you help us? Help us to see those things clearly. Give us the courage, the humility to turn from sin and to fight the good fight of faith by, by your grace and by your power. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, my name is Takashi. I was born and raised in Japan in a secular family. Today, I'd like to get baptized to publicly announce my faith in Jesus and to praise the love of God. When I was younger, I struggled with the pressure from the Japanese system. It was difficult for me to feel loved as I was. But through reading the Bible and meeting with the faithful people in the church, I was struck by how deep the love of God is, regardless of our sins. He loves us so much that he sent his only son Jesus to be crucified on the cross. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 25, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. As I keep confessing my sins and praying, I feel this personal relationship with Jesus getting stronger. I pray that I can humbly love and follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Thank you.